And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. And we would like to welcome you back to another episode of the program where we get to travel the country and speak to some of the most amazing Christ followers who are living out their faith in the marketplace. And I'm excited you've joined us today. I am on the campus of Bellhaven University. I'm in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Roger Parrott. Roger, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you on this uh, program and thrilled that you're here in Jackson, Mississippi on our campus and speaking in chapel tomorrow with oh. our students. So we're we're excited that you're going to bring the message of truth at work to our students. Uh, we are so excited to be here. And you know, you and I met a few months ago. Uh, we were at a conference together and you spoke and you led a session. We're going to talk a lot about your topic that you spoke on that day. It was so impactful to me. And you talk about the difference between strategic planning and opportunity planning. We're gonna get into that today, right? I sure hope we will, because it's really been the centerpiece of how we operate here and how things are done differently. But I, I think the world teaches us a lot about strategic planning and we're seeing how ineffective that is. But the Bible teaches us about opportunity planning. Yeah. And when you do that, not only is it more effective, but it's a trusting of God that is remarkable in leadership. It's a totally different way to lead but it's something that I really believe in, and we've proven that it works. That's right. That's right. And I can't wait to get into that. And I can't tell you how many people I have talked about. I, I know I butchered that presentation. So today, <laughs> you're going to get to straighten me out on what I maybe have gotten wrong, but it really was impactful. Mm. And we're going to come back to that, but I want to hit the pause button. You have been here at Bellhaven for 25 years. You were one of the youngest presidents at what, age 34 when I, you were? I was. It was way too young to be president. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and now I've done it so long, I can't do, any, can't do anything else. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey how I got toward it. Uh, you know, everybody assumes it was natural because my father and grandfather were both college and university presidents, but it really wasn't. It wasn't something I really felt called to or drawn to until probably I'd had a time as a vice president and then for a while was with the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization, which is a wonderful experience. But when that big project came to an end, I knew we were gonna make a change. And so, yeah, I started thinking about a college presidency and I thought I was too young, but you never know. And so put out those uh, feelers and applications and didn't get any response at hmm. all. In fact, I remember one time my wife and I took a trip to a little bitty beat up campus in the hills <laughs> that was looking for president. We were sure they would want us, but they didn't even call back. And so we were on a walk late one night and uh, which we would do, I was traveling a lot in those days. So we'd value those times. And we just said, you know, if this isn't what God wants us, let's just let it go. Hmm. And we absolutely on that walk, completely let it go. We decided we were going to move to Phoenix, Arizona and plant a church. And within two weeks, I had two universities that were interested in presidency. And um, it was pretty remarkable. I think God was just waiting to say, until you want this for the right reasons, it's not going to happen. And then let it go and put it in God's hands. And then the opportunities came. I love that. And, and those are some of the foundational principles we're going to talk about Very much so. on opportunity versus strategic planning. Well, as you mentioned, you come from a long line of, was it your father and your grandfather mm -hmm. that were both university presidents? Is that, yes, is that right? Yes, both. 
Well, yeah. And so growing up, I want to talk about the state of Christian higher ed and higher ed in general in our country in just a moment. But growing up, you know, as a, as a young boy and then ultimately become a young man, what was it about higher ed that you learned from your grandfather and your father that at least interested you that this may be the field for you? Well, you know, I think probably one of the greatest things my dad taught me, and I probably was had more interaction, obviously, with him than my grandfather uh, in the education world. But one of the great things he taught me as a leader is he never brought it home. I never knew until years later about the challenges he had with faculty, the hard decisions he had to make, the time he had to cut the budget dramatically. I never knew about Mm. any of that. All I ever heard was it was great, it was wonderful, God was at work, and all the specifics he never shared with the kids. He did with my mother. But I think that was a great lesson of leadership, um, to understand, to not take that burden and put it on a, on a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old yeah. or whatever, which we tend to do in leadership sometimes, and we've got to be careful about that. But, but Dad didn't teach me a lot about higher education. I think I, I specifically, he, he taught me a couple of things that, that were really important for all leaders, not just higher ed, but he always said, learn to live with ambiguity. Hmm. And when he first said it, I didn't really know what he meant, but I sure know now. And uh, if you're waiting to nail everything down, it's not going to happen. If you can't live with ambiguity, yeah. you, can't, you can't be effective in leadership. The other thing he said, which has always been very helpful, he said, everywhere you go, assume somebody knows you. And um, that changes how you operate as a leader. I remember one time I was on an airplane and something really went bad and I was frustrated and all, and I wanted to just lash out at the flight attendant and do what everybody else was doing or would want to do. And I remember I, I didn't do it. I kept thinking about dad's words. I got up at the end of that flight, I'm getting my bag, standing in line. I get a tap on the shoulder from about four rows back. Dr. Parrott, I'm an alumnus of your school. <laughs> and that has proven a important principle of leadership to me, especially in something as public as a university. Oh, that's fantastic. And so t- tell us a little bit about Bellhaven. It's one of the leading Christian higher ed institutions in the country, um, but talk, talk to us a little bit about the size and scope and what our audience needs to know about this fine place. Yeah, Bellhaven is a very unusual institution and doing such wonderful things. But we're in Jackson, Mississippi, and a lot of people don't know about us, but we're one of only 36 schools in the nation of any kind who are nationally accredited in all four of the major arts, music, theater, visual art, and dance. Wow. And those are very difficult accreditations to get. We're the only evangelical school that's working at that ultra high level in the arts. Um, Our dancers, two out of the last three years, went to what's considered the final four of dance, which is a Kennedy Center competition. We work in in all the arts at incredibly high levels, along with creative writing, uh, one of our alums, uh, Angie Thomas, has a marvelous book, the two books that were number one and two on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year, uh, made into a major motion picture, The Hate You Give. Um, uh, we do film where about a third of our students, of traditional students, are in the arts, which creates a wonderful environment for learning. And then, of course, we've got all the other kinds of majors in STEM and pre-engineering partnerships with Old Miss, Mississippi State, uh, nursing, and uh, kind of the, uh, the full gamut. Yeah. Then we have a wonderful adult-focused program and 
online and on ground here in Jackson, and then uh, an array of graduate programs, about 20 different masters, a doctorate in business, doctorate in ministry, and a doctorate in um, education. And then probably the newest thing to our um, focus is that we have uh, 750 students in China studying full-time online with us. They, wow. they are in their MBA, they're all in China. We teach in both English and in Mandarin. And uh, they want an American degree. And we are the largest Christian college in China with that program. So wow. God has opened up an opportunity there that we never imagined. We've only been doing that a year and a half. And uh, we don't know where it'll go. But um, that's part of opportunity leadership. We may circle back around to that story, <laughs> right? And how quickly that came about. Yeah. I recall that. So um, talk to us a little bit. There's a lot of, you know, in the news about the, just the kind of the overall state of higher ed and, uh, um, and whether it's a political discussions and debates and all the student loans and everything that's going on. And are we preparing the students for the right jobs in the right industry and trades versus, you know, technical and, and um, all these kinds of things? Just kind of bring us up to speed from your perspective in your seat. What is the state of higher ed in our country? Uh, that's a big question. And specifically the state of Christian higher ed. And what are some of the challenges yeah. that you're facing? Yeah. Well, first of all, nobody's going to give away uh, free tuition across the board. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Nor are they going to forgive debt. There's a lot of talk about it. Yeah. It is so complex and so technical because every state's investment in higher education is so dramatically different. There's no way to get equity in that. So, But unfortunately, it's creating a, a whole generation of students who are expecting that mm. and families who are expecting that. And parents who come in to see me and say, we love Bellhaven. We want a Christian education. We want a, a Christian worldview taught for our students, but we don't want to take any debt. And, and if the Lord provides the money, well, does the Lord provide the money for you to go buy your house in the same way? I don't yeah. want any debt and your car. And I'll respect somebody who does. But why not take the debt in education? It's the most important investment you make in your life. And as I tell families, when you're thinking about higher ed, you know, think of a specific car. If you need to buy a car today, what car would that be? What car could you afford? And I tell them, get a specific car in mind and a price point. And then I tell them, now here's the catch. You got to keep that same car the next 50 years, mm. and that's the only car you ever get. Would you spend a little more on value? Would you spend a little more on safety? Would you spend a little more on quality? Well, of course you would. And that's what education decisions should be. But it's complex to understand. I wrote a 17-page paper for, for mm. students that's online for our students and others who want it about the real cost of higher ed, because people assume a lot of things that that is not true. The problem with higher ed in that decision of families is they're making a decision on a very expensive product that they've never had to decide about before. Mm. And they don't even know the right questions to ask. They assume if you go to a state school, it's cheaper. I can prove to you it's less expensive to come to Bellhaven than it is to go to a state school. They assume I go to community college because that's really cheap. And it could be if it's done right, if it's done wrong, it'll cost you a lot more. There's a lot of things people don't understand. So yeah, I think you got to start with the consumer who doesn't understand the product they are buying. Okay. And then they start buying it on the wrong reasons. Public education focuses on size, sizzle, sports, and status. Those four S's, size, sizzle, sports, and status. That's where they're focused. That's what their product is. 
there's the, the national problem of binge drinking. Schools can solve that. They don't want to solve that. Mm-hmm. That's what attracts our students. They are focused on all kinds of different things that we're focused on. We're interested in curriculum and care, and we're interested in Christ at the center of what we are. And there's a fourth C I can't remember. Probably it's character. On my web- <laughs> a character. That's the one. Thank you. We didn't script that. Thank by you. The way. No, we didn't. No, that's <laughs> just that's the exact one. But yeah. that's where Bell Haven's focus. Yeah. That's the difference with us. So it's a pretty heavy duty contrast yeah. between public education and Christian education, and making even that decision among Christian colleges is difficult. And where does that fit in the spectrum? Yeah. Uh, one of the benchmarks, the easy benchmarks I give for families is, um, uh, you know, if they if they have a religion department, mm-hmm. be very careful. Mm-hmm. If they have a Bible department, you're okay. But but really, what I tell families is, here's the way to tell one school from another. It's real simple. Ask what they require of everybody. We require four things of everybody: a course in how to identify your gifts, because. We believe education should be built on your gifts, not on your negatives. Um, higher education is really crazy. We test you on what you're bad at, and then we give you a bunch of that. That's wrong. God's gifted everybody differently. Let's figure out your gifts. Secondly, we have what we call our worldview curriculum, where we teach the history of the world over a year-long period, and we understand our Christian worldview is distinctive over time. Thirdly, we require chapel because we care about worship. And fourthly, we require a capstone course called Kingdom Life and Work, that teaches you how to manage the balance between your family and your career. Because if you're not happy at home, you're not going to be happy. And in those four requirements, you can tell what we care about. We care about your gifts. We care about your worldview. We care about worship. And we care about your family. Take the same criteria to any school. Ask them what they require of everybody. And it will tell you the core of who they are. And if they don't require anything of every student, I'd be especially cautious because they don't have a core. That's the mm. state we're in in higher education. Most schools are not have a core that's of value, and that's why we're getting an end product, if you can be really crass about higher education, of people who are underprepared because they might be trained, but they're not prepared for the complexity of life. And wow. that's where we try to be different. That's really fantastic. And, and uh, the parallel that I'm hearing as I'm listening to this, a lot of our audience here at Bottom Line Faith are business owners, CEOs, people who are running companies and divisions within companies and so forth, is if you don't have a core and you don't know what you stand for as an organization, you're really going to wander and probably just go with the flow. And I love that. I I don't think I've heard that before around making that as part of your educational Mm. choice and decision. Where did you come up with that? I I think that's fantastic. I don't know. It just, you know, I've talked to prospective families all the time. Right. And they give me 20 minutes to talk to prospective families. I got to figure out how to get this really big, complex idea in a way they can handle. I don't know. It's kind of developed through time. But, but, you know, even from the business owner's side, do you want somebody trained or do you want somebody who's got character and integrity and is has the ability to learn and a work ethic and has a foundation yeah. of faith that's going to hold them up through the tests of life? Because they're going to come to everybody. Everybody's going to hit a wall at some point. So do you want that or do you want that person who's, who comes from that prestigious degree, however you want to yeah. define that, who's highly trained in one specialized area but doesn't have any bottom line uh, core to them? I mean, from a from a employer's perspective, and I'm an employer, 
Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I'm looking for people who can adjust and be mobile and can respond. And I find students, I hire our own, our own graduates because I know how they're prepared. And I, <laughs> I encourage business leaders Love it. to look at those values when they're evaluating, not just the show pieces that come from the more flagship university. Right. That's, that's really good. So um, what are some of the challenges that are facing Christian higher ed specifically today that you're seeing that um, maybe some schools are addressing well and some schools maybe aren't addressing so well? What are some of those unique challenges? Well, I, th I think the biggest challenge that used to be on our agenda and will come back on our agenda is the ability to hire who we want to hire based okay. on faith. Yeah, um, yeah. And But it's interesting, uh, uh, the president of the Council of Christian Colleges said not too long ago that the now the number one issue beyond that is the ability to adjust fast enough to a rapidly changing uh, need in higher education. And that's what I'm seeing the biggest risk for Christian higher education. Yeah, I think we're fine on on ability to hire. I, th I think even if the laws change, we can figure out a way to make it work. I'm not worried about that. But these schools are so slow to change. They can't adopt. They can't make a decision. They have so much process. They can't change fast enough to capture a market, and they're going to get beat up, and we're going to lose a bunch in the meantime. I'm really concerned that many are not going to make it. So, Roger, it's <laughs> that's probably a great segue for us to talk about what I'm really wanting to focus on with you, and it's what drew us together a few months ago this whole concept of opportunity planning versus strategic planning. You know, most, most people would say it's no secret that most academic institutions are like really slow to make a decision. And uh, they'll, they'll, they'll have an issue that they're gonna think about, so they'll form a committee and they'll do research and then they'll do all sorts of market, you know, surveys or what have you. And by the time they come to an answer, they forget what they were <laughs> trying to answer in the first place. So talk to us then about this whole concept of opportunity planning versus strategic planning. Let's start at kind of the 30,000 foot level. What do you mean by that? And then let's dive into some specifics. So yeah. what do you mean about that? Well, I think the easiest way to understand it, again, one of the characteristics I believe in in leadership is to take big ideas and explain them simply. The image difference between a sailboat and a powerboat. A sailboat that's equipped to catch the wind of God and go where God's wind leads us rather than a powerboat that goes where we think God wants us to go and totally ignores the wind. And I think that to me is an image that my campus has understood that is that big difference. One is designed on traditional models of structure and process and committees and input and all that goes along with that. The other is a sensitivity, an ultra high sensitivity to God's winds up blowing and leading us into new opportunities and the ability to quickly respond to those. And uh, that's the key to a sailor in a sailboat. You have to quickly respond to the wind, but you also have to sense it coming. And God's wind doesn't always blow hard at the beginning. Often it blows very gently, and that's been our experience mm -hmm. in, in our more specific examples, is, is that the, sometimes those gentle winds, if we're attentive to those, you can catch on to opportunities and go with them. And so at, in, in practice then, Bellhaven does not have a long-range plan. Unlike every mm. other university in this country, there is no document that says Bellhaven 3030 or Bellhaven 2025. 
that document does not exist. There is no plan. There is not even a planning structure. And people will say to me, well, tell me what's the future of the institution. What, what do you expect Bellhaven to be? And I don't want to be flipping my answer, but my legitimate answer is I have absolutely no idea. Mm. But what I do know is that God's plan for us is much better than the best plan we could come up with sitting around conference tables. And so we, our plan is to be prepared to capture opportunities when they come, to have the right team, the right spirit, the right culture that can capture opportunities and move quickly when they come rather than try to predict the destination. That's why we call the difference between destination planning and strategic planning. We're not going to be about destination planning. We're not going to pick destinations. Now, sure, we plan mm -hmm. traditional things. I mean, we're going to have a football team. We're going to have an English department. We're going to, you know, feed students in the dining commons. We have to have a plan for those things. We plan what we know. We don't plan destinations. And I think that's the big difference. So it's really fascinating to me, and this is what intrigued me about, and wanted to come back and have this conversation with you. I thought about this analogy of the power boat, or, you know, that we're going to put gas in the engine and we're going to say that's where we're going. And it doesn't matter how strong the currents are. It doesn't matter what obstacles we've got to overcome. By gosh, we're going to get there no right. matter what. But what I hear you saying is if we want to follow the Lord's leading, there's a better way. And that's the sailboat analogy. Just tell us a little bit more about that, though, because... Just it's kind of different thinking. It's a very different thinking, and it's got to be very purposeful because it's very easy. We've gotten in the church. We've gotten really good at building power boats. They're impressive. And we build these big engines and these big ministries and these big organizations, these big churches and, and these big businesses built on Christian principles. We're really good at that now. We can compete with anybody out there in power boats, and we couldn't hmm. always do that as Christians. So we're pretty proud of them. But they're not effective because they do ignore the currents, they do ignore the wind, and we head out on a destination. And if you want to look at it in the reverse order, churches and Christians are really bad at stopping what didn't work. And so we don't want to stop anything. Why? Because God called us to it. That was our destination. We had a planning process. Everybody agreed on it. We prayed on it at the end. That's where we're going to go. But it didn't work. Well maybe that's not what God wanted you to do. Or maybe God did that in preparation for you to do something else. And so in opportunity leadership, we're willing to stop things that don't work. So just as we would start things, we will stop things that don't work. And it's really about a sensitivity to saying, God, this is your university. This is not mine. This is not mine to determine a future. If you want us to go out of business, then that's your choice. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. want us to flourish, if you want us to reach students in China, that's your business. You guide and direct us. My responsibility is to be sensitive to his leading and directing along with my team and to have the right people who can move when those moments come. And so it's a very different way of doing it. And it starts with closing the book on right. all those traditional patterns of Planning, and part of the reason we like the patterns of planning is they're comfort uh, blanket, especially the university presidents. Every university president who gets elected comes in, first nine, six months, nine months, I'm going to be listening. Well, what's that mean? But they all do it. 
Then I'm going to appoint a blue ribbon committee and we're going to develop a plan and they're going to work for 18 months. And I'm real strategic about who I put on that plan and I make sure the people that, that are going to be most against it are on the plan. And we get every <laughs> constituency represented in the whole deal. And, and in the process, we homogenize all of our strengths to the lowest common denominator. So everybody gets a piece of that plan. And we come out with a document that we're all proud of. And other than to raise money, it really does very little good. But in that process, we've lost all kinds of opportunities. We lost all kinds of moments to go forward. We've lost all kinds of strategic strengths that we have, we can't build on because we're trying to get everybody represented in the plan. Hmm. And so you've got to close the book on that whole thing. I don't spend any time in planning meetings. We don't have a committee planning meetings. I'm looking for opportunities. I'm answering the phone. I'm talking to people. We're jumping on stuff because we're not bogged down wow. with all that process. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard for people who are used to that process because as a leader, that's how we show our value. I'm valued as a leader because look at this process I put together and look at what we're coming out with and the, and the group, the, the Blue Ribbon Committee, it's not a committee, it's a Blue Ribbon Committee, is working on it. <laughs> so you know it's good. And that's what we're up against. You got to just drop it and walk away from it. It's hard to do and it takes courage, but I tell you, it works. Well, I want to, I wanted to ask this question then as I'm listening to this, I want to go back a few moments ago you were talking about why it's so important to be able to communicate what your core is, the values and the requirements that are, and the expectations of what everybody's going to experience um, on the front end. And then also then this flexibility, this opportunity planning. So how does that kind of ebb and flow? How do you hold on to the core, those values and those non-changing, non-negotiable principles that you stand for, and at the same time respond to a very fast-changing, fast-paced world. How does that yeah. work? Yeah, it, you've got to be clear on what your mission is. What are you trying to do? What is you, that really focused here? Or is that the core here? You've got to know what your you mission is? You've got to know what your mission is. Okay. I, a, an hour before you came in my office, I passed up on a good opportunity that would have made us some money and would have reached some students, but it did not fit our core mission. Okay. And I said, and because of that, we said, yeah, we're not going to do it. Now, uh, you know, it's not that it was a bad project. Yeah. Project, it was fine, but it just doesn't fit our core. Okay. And so if it doesn't stand up to examination of, yeah, we feel good about that because it's our core, then it doesn't fit. Now, at the same time, the core or the mission is not so narrow that we can't do anything that doesn't hit just what our ideal is. And I think that's where Christian organizations get in trouble. They have an ideal of what they want to do and they won't budge off the ideal. So our ideal is we want a 18 year old sitting in a classroom Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a faculty member who's talking about worldview and discipling them at a deep level. That's terrific and we do a lot of that. But everything we do is not at that level. I've got adult students who are single moms who are just trying to make it and the fact that we can come to them with an online program that's built on a foundation of faith and give them hope, it's not the level of discipleship an 18-year-old's getting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but still, it's going to enrich and change their life forever. We have more students come back to Christ through our online program than we do through our traditional program because they love it and they, they're coming back to what they... Then we've got our Chinese program. Well, we've got to be very careful in China. It, you know, yeah. we've got to, we are bound by the laws of China. But what we know is 
if we treat those students with kindness and grace and generosity, the Chinese system is based in education on weeding out the weak so the cream rises to the top. These students have never been valued for their ability in their life. They've only been beat down. If we can lift all of them up as important, important to us, important to God, and then we know with the Chinese, they will be forever committed to us. We have a long time to work with the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so we that's, a, that's more of a grace-filled evangelism piece of our mission, where at the other end of the spectrum would be deep discipleship. Yeah. But we're not going to go outside of that. Okay. And so that's kind of where we frame our focus. What are we going to consider? What are we not going to consider? Yeah, fantastic. I, let's go back to this story about the, the China initiative, because this is really not an atypical launch, right, <laughs> of an initiative inside a Christian higher ed program. This really is a great example of not going down the pathway of strategic or destination planning, but it opportunity. Is. Tell us that story. It it's is. fascinating to me. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. I had a phone call on July 1st a year ago, uh, a year and a half ago from a, from a friend that I've known for a long, long time. And he said, he's, a, he's an entrepreneur in higher education. He said, I'm talking with a group in China. They're looking for a school to work with. Would you have any interest? And I said, well, you know, yeah, mate, I never thought about it. Um, and uh, I said, you got anything to send me? He said, no, not really. He said, there's just a, an idea and a dream that they have. And I said, well, let's talk to them. Well, by that was July 1st. By August 1st, we had a contract. By September 1st, we were building curriculum. And October 1st, we were enrolling students. <laughs> and That just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You know, on most college campuses, you can't change the name of a course in four months, much, much less start a whole program a whole half a world away. And so, but you don't do that from zero to 60 unless you've had years of building a culture that was ready for that. And my board had to be ready for it. This one was so significant. I went individually to each of my executive committee members of the board, met them at their place, and sat down for two hours and talked them through it so they would understand it. Uh, Brought key faculty members in. It was during the summer, so the full faculty wasn't here. Full faculty didn't even hear about it until after the deal was done. (laughs) But key faculty and, and, and key leadership among our team and everybody would buy into it, but it was a fast, fast process. It wasn't, well, we've got a committee, let's refer it to the committee and they'll go through a process. But no, I got the people who needed to make the decision in the room and we made the decision. And that's kind of how this works. And um, I was doing, I was doing uh, another partnership, which is this new developing with us. We were talking with the principal of the partner that we were looking and I had three people on the phone with me and he said, well, take this to your decision-making team and, you know, examine it. I said, you're talking to everybody who make the decision. We're, we're good. We're right here. And let's decide. And, um, you know, and I know when, yeah, there are things that, sure, the whole faculty need to weigh in on. There are things that two or three people can sell. There are things that one person can sell. There's decisions made around here all the time. I don't have anything to do with because people are empowered to do it. And that's okay. But that's part of what opportunity leadership is, is creating a culture so that people can move very, very quickly when those moments come. China's a great example of that. I've had another one since I've seen you. In fact, it was right in this room. But I had a group here not too long ago. We're, we're doing a coding camp. 
uh, year ago, uh, December, there were three universities announced they were doing coding camps, Harvard, Yale, and Bellhaven. And we're all doing the exact same thing. We're partnering with an outside group. The only difference with ours is we put a course on it on biblical principles of ethics in computer management. Um, but so we're partnering with this group. Well, they were here and we were trying to work out some problems. They flew in from California, got here at 10 o'clock in the morning. By one o'clock, we had the four big issues they were trying to work through figured out. And they said, this is amazing. Because I brought in different people to get the decisions made. And right. the head of the computer science, he came over and met us for dessert for lunch. And the provost came in for a little bit. This one came in and, and we worked it out. They said we were at, and I, I won't give you the name of the school, but an ultra high-end, ultra high-end flagship in California. Yesterday, we made the same presentation and they said, we will get you an answer in 18 months. Yeah. And we wanted to say to them, 18 months, computer science is going to be totally different in 18 months. It won't do any good. <laughs> you know, but that's the difference. They have a planning yeah. model. Yeah. We have an opportunity leadership model. And we can go fast and we can make it happen. And they can't. And it's not just a matter of size. It's a matter of culture. And it's a matter of commitment. And it's a matter of who do you trust? Do you trust the planning process or do you trust God? And I think that's the big difference. That's fantastic. And so under this kind of concept of creating a culture to embrace these kind of opportunities, you've got some benchmarks. Let me just, uh, as I, uh, these are from my notes from when I heard you mm. before. And so uh, I'll, I'll read these and then maybe we'll focus on a couple of them. It talked about the importance of trust, focus, preparation, control, direction, relationships, and demands. Mm. Uh, Tell us a little bit about those benchmarks and the roles that maybe a couple of them play in this yeah. whole planning yeah. process. I, I think the, the culture is so critical. You have to, everybody has to buy in on it. And the first years we were doing this, you know, people kept looking for the plan and and have keep reminding them we're not doing the plan. And creating that culture was the biggest, hardest shift. And... Uh, I've done some writing about that shift because I think it is so critical in and you can't just flip a switch and do it. Because again, planning's been at the center of what we do as leadership, and all of a sudden you take it away. Well, what are you gonna do all day? Mm -hmm. And um, so how do you substitute that and how do you show it will work and how do you build a culture? So people have to buy in, they have to see it. Now we've done it long enough here, we've got enough track record, everybody just takes it for granted. And there's, doesn't, they don't even look up now hardly when we have something new because it's just so much of it. But that took a long time to create that culture. And that's about having the right team who's prepared. They don't have really hard job descriptions. They're very flexible. And we're always adding something to somebody's job hmm. or taking away both. And some people don't want to give up anything. No, sometimes you need to. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter always of structure. It's about go get this done. It's a matter of uh, what we call functional lines of authority. And that means you have the authority to get in the room, whoever you need to get in the room to get something done. Yeah. So bring them in. And um, it's a matter of having some money so you can invest when the moments come. And it's a, it's a really about speed. Speed wins every time. I'll take speed over quality. I'll figure out the quality later on, but if you don't get speed, you don't get a chance to do the quality. You've got to go wow. fast, ultra fast. And so, you know, 
we, when we do partnerships, we do new things, we get new ideas. I mean, our time compression, even now, is it's almost scary how fast it is. Yeah. It wasn't at the beginning. It yeah. was really slow. It, it took a long time to get through things because we were having to get people to buy in. The trust issue is an interesting one because we all say we trust God. We all say we want God's best for us. We pray for that, but we act like we don't. And so do you really trust God to run your business and to want the best for it? Do you really trust God to bring the best thing to the university and protect you from the thing you don't need that yeah. could get you off base? Um, that trust issue has to take on a new level of meaning. It's the real thing. You're not trusted in theory anymore. Hmm. You're not coming up with your best plan and praying over it and say, God bless this. You're really trusting. And literally, when I start a school year, I often will sit in my office and think, I wonder what I'll do this year. <laughs> it's that much. Years ago, when we were kind of Six, seven years into this, I had somebody discover it of a foundation leader, and he was really intrigued. And he brought a number of, of ministry leaders in here to spend three days with us. And it was an interesting time because it was the first time I'd really ever talked it through. And so I talked the thing through with him. And one of the guys from, I think he was from South America, at the end, he said, you really expect God to bring you opportunities, don't you? And that's when it hit me. Yeah, we really do. And now we just know. The question is, we get too many. We can't do them all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so it's kind of remarkable. When you're sensitive to that wind and that sailboat, to yeah. go back to that, when you're sensitive to the wind, it's amazing how much it does blow. But we're so busy building our powerboat and going so fast in it, we don't ever feel it. And that's that's... That trust is so freeing. It's the best thing I've ever done as a leader. I'm not worried about it. God's in charge. Yeah. God's going to make it happen. And one thing after another after another happens. And, you know, it's easy sometimes to tell the success story. Sometimes there's a lot of hard yeah. work in between. Yeah. Sometimes there are failures in between. And, and I don't get bothered by those anymore either. I used to, but I don't now. Because I know God's timing is right. You know, one of the things I'm learning, and, and, and universities are businesses too, but you, things go in cycles. And the things that worked 10 years ago don't necessarily work anymore. Right, right. And boy, we hang on to them forever. And I've closed some regional campuses because that model is dying out. Well, you know, that's okay. It was a great thing for the time we had them. Yeah, I like they that. were going like crazy. They're not anymore. So fine, let's stop. Let's do something else. The key is you always got to have something else. And what I found is God brings something else if you're ready for it. If you're not ready for it, God's not going to bring it. And you got to be asking. And you got to be asking. And you got to be responsive. But I think God brings a lot of things to businesses and to churches and to universities they don't even see. And so after a while, it just didn't come much anymore. So, um, Gosh, this time is going so fast. We're, we're going to be winding down here fairly shortly. But so I, I, I know my audience here at Bottom Line Faith, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs who right now are cheering this conversation on, going, <laughs> yes, yes, if I could just get my organization, my company to, to buy into this, because they're true entrepreneurs. 
And then I know there's a lot of folks right now who are the ops people and they're like, oh, they're cringing, they're gritting their teeth like, no, there's gotta be planning. We've gotta test and make sure it all works. Yeah. How do you help that synergy uh, yeah. What's the key to making yeah. that synergy work? Because yeah. it's you got to have both. You got to have the entrepreneurialism. You got to have, have both. you know things making sense. What what would you say? Yeah. To that? Well, first of all, quick parentheses and quick sales promotion. Since you brought it up, and I don't think you even know this, we're doing in a new partnership a master's degree in startup business. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Uh, okay. We're doing it with Global Silicon Valley Labs, and. Um, the, the idea of the degree is you come to us with your business you want to start, tech company, food truck, insurance business, whatever it is you want to start. And everything in that master's will be designed around your project. So when we talk about marketing, it's going to be about you marketing your food truck. When we talk teach about finance, it's going to be about you financing your tech company. Everything in that is fully online degree. And so for entrepreneurs, we've got serious enough about we're going to start teaching this stuff too. And so that's, that's coming. But back to the tip, back to the question. I think if the leadership who's being visionary does not respect the operational people, you fall apart in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And I know it's real easy for me to say, Oh, well, let's go do this. Well, I got a whole bunch of people who got to actually go do it. If they don't execute speeds first execution, second, if they don't execute, it doesn't matter what I come up with. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter who calls me if they can't execute. So we're all about execution and we reward and we value those people who can execute all through the process. And, you know, I, I wish we were in financial position. We could all pay them what they're worth and we don't. We have to reward them eternally, but yes. But, but execution, matters. so the operations people, I'm cheering them on too. But yes, for the... CEOs, the entrepreneur types, I challenge them, give up your plan first, then see how brave you are. <laughs> love give it. up your plan, trust God for an opportunity, begin small. You don't yeah. have to walk away from it all. That's Just right. pray the prayer. God, if you bring me an opportunity, I will be sensitive to it and I'll respond to it. And I'll guarantee you, the Lord will put something new in their path they did not expect and if they'll capitalize on that, they'll execute well, they'll go with speed. I'm talking about hours and days, not weeks and months. If they'll go with speed, God will bring them another one and another one and another one. And again, that's how we operate in full now. And it's the best thing in leadership going. You're it's speaking so my language. Fun. You're speaking my <laughs> language. Um, just a couple more questions for you, Roger. This has been so much fun, but you're actually going to be coming out with a book or you're working on a book around this whole concept. Would you just speak to that for I just am. a yeah. moment and then I'll wrap well, this up? Well, I've got a book that was kind of introduced the idea. It's called The Long View: Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders. And it introduces the powerboat sailboat idea and some of this thing. But I wrote that 10 years ago, and we have matured so far in how we do this. Yeah. And I'm writing a new book, and the working title is Stop Planning, Start Leading, uh, Doing the Things That Move the move the Needle. And how do you really do that? And get away from this planning thing. And it outlines, it's going to outline the 10 principles that leaders have to follow, and then the 10 principles that tend to be the trends within the organization that lives by this kind of model of opportunity leadership is kind of the the yeah. the 
phrase that I've coined for what is different about what we do. It's about it's a whole spectrum of leadership, not just planning, but a whole spectrum of round opportunities. I love it. I love it. Well, the last section of my every conversation that I have here at Bottom Line Faith is what I kind of call my advice and insights. And I have just a couple of questions for you. If you knowing what you know now, if you had a chance to sit across the table from the 20 year old Roger, <laughs> what would you say to him? And would he listen? Um, 20 years old? Probably not. Hopefully 25 would have. <laughs> I was, I was too, uh, uh, head and heels with my, yeah. uh, uh, enamored with my wife at 20, my wife to be that she was the only thing I would focus on. Yes. I didn't get serious. Understandable. I didn't get serious about education really until I got in graduate school. Yeah. And, um, and she was probably the big influence that made that happen. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think, yeah, you wish you'd know then what you know now. Sure. Um, I think probably a transformation maybe came a little bit later um, in the in, in the leadership side of it, in that, you know, there's a lot of people who want to be university president. I get people talk to me all the time, how do I be university president? My first question is, do you want to get the job or do you want to do the job? And a lot of people want to get the job. And I think early in life, in that 25-year-old Roger, it's more about get the job than to do the job. Now it's all about do the job. I could care less about yeah. the things that come along with the office. I just love doing it every single day. And I don't want to quit. I just love it so much. Um, I, I think that's the big thing. And I assume everybody struggles with yeah. some of that. Um, you know, I think there's probably another point of change in that leadership that comes, and I often will talk to younger leaders about this, there's a point that comes when everything's not new anymore. And that's especially true for younger leaders who kind of were put into leadership before they should have been, and everything was new, everything was exciting, and you get into your 40s and all of a sudden one day you wake up and you go, this isn't as new, and this isn't exciting mm -hmm. as, have I lost my mojo, have I lost my passion? No, you haven't, you've just done it all. You, you've been in those settings, you've spoken to those groups, you've been to the White House, you've, you've done all the stuff, and now you're doing it again, and it feels different, but it's not different. It's time to move into a different level of leadership because you do have that yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah. So I think those are probably a couple of the things for up-and-coming younger leaders that I would caution them for, and they're natural transitions that we all face. And sometimes if you just know they're coming, it helps it. I love it. I love it. I, I want to take away, you know, would you rather get the job or do the job? That's a really gold nugget there. I appreciate that. Well, Roger, the last question that I ask, I don't know, I've done probably 160 of these interviews now at Bottom Line Faith. The last question I ask every one of my guests, I call it my 423 question. It's based out of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where Solomon writes, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all of life. So Roger, let's just fast forward the clock and let's say you're at the end of the, this time, uh, your, your time this side of eternity here on earth, and you have a chance to pass along to your family, your friends, your loved ones, <laughs> anyone who would listen actually, that one piece of advice. What is the one piece of advice that you'd like to leave our audience with today? I'd like you to fill in the blank. Above all else, can I answer that with a story? I'm a kind of a southerner, so I tend to tell stories. Of course. 
my kids both graduated here and um, they were a year apart in age, but they happened to graduate on the same day, which was kind of special. My wife teaches on the faculty here. I'm the president. I get to give them their diploma and my wife handed them the diploma. It was a big deal. But I had a graduation speaker playing because I wanted something special for my kids. And so I got a very famous former governor here in the state of Mississippi to be the speaker, but he got hurt and he couldn't come. And so I said, well, I'll do it. So I was a speaker for their graduation. Okay. And so at graduation, since I heard everything I got to say, so they didn't want one more thing. But we have a tradition in chapel that we end every chapel with a Bible verse. And you're speaking tomorrow and you'll hear it. At the end of chapel, we say together in unison, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so I did this, this commencement speech and started to kind of build it up and play with it a little bit. And I said, and I just want to just leave you one word and nothing else, just one word and kind of built it up. And, I, and I'd start, no eye has seen, and I was going to stop and back off. The whole graduation class says the thing in unison mm. without me filling the auditorium. And that's my word. No eyes seen, no ears heard, no mind is conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what I would hope I live by, this university lives by, our graduates should live by. That's a good final word. Thank you for being our guest here at Bottom Line Faith. What a treat. Well, folks, wow. Have you been as blessed and as encouraged as I have? been with our conversation with Roger Parrott. I, I am so encouraged to know that men like him are leading the next generation of godly leaders. You know, here at Bottom Line Faith, as I said in the opening comments, that's what we're about here, eternal business in real life. And we have learned eternal principles today. Um, Roger talked to us about following the Holy Spirit's leading, not getting uh, so um, locked into our own plans, the powerboat analogy, but following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That's eternal business. He's also talked to us about real life, some of the challenges and things that we need to overcome, uh, not only in higher ed, but just in preparing the next generation of godly leaders. So this has just been a great conversation uh, here at Bottom Line Faith today. I hope that you have been as blessed and as encouraged as I have been. And uh, check out Bellhaven University. And uh, you may have a young student or a, a young person getting ready to prepare for that next chapter of life. I've had a chance to be on campus today getting to know Dr. Parrott. It would be a great place to send your young leader as well. Until next time, I am your host, Ray Hilbert, here at Bottom Line Faith, encouraging you to live out your faith every day in the marketplace. God bless, and we'll see you soon. Bottom Line Faith is a production of Truth at Work. If you'd like to subscribe to our mailing list to be notified of new episodes, just enter your email address on our website, bottomlinefaith.org. Download and subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can download and listen to every Bottom Line Faith episode at bottomlinefaith.org.